You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. We've been in, in the middle of a four-part series about the one and others of Scripture. It's so good to see you guys here today and to be uh, here in God's house worshiping with us and uh, fellowshipping with us today. Hopefully it's not just because of lunch after service, although I know how you folks are sometimes. So, But uh, I hope that you'll uh, enjoy that as well and stick around for the business meeting. For those of you who are members, we just have some updates on our sanctuary project that you'll want to hear about. And so over the last few weeks, we've been uh, talking about the one and others of Scripture and testing the depths of our Christian walk. It's one thing to say that we're a Christian. It's one thing to claim to have been a Christian for 20, 30 years, 40 plus years. And many people identify as Christians by virtue of the religion they choose on the census box. But does it go any deeper than that? Is there any real depth to our faith, and I believe that the test of the depth of our faith is how we treat one another, how we react to one another, um, how we choose to live, because that really determines whether or not the word that we read, the word that we study, the word that inspires us, the word that we guide our life by is actually making some kind of legitimate change in us, so that people can see and say, okay, there's a person that really lives out what they believe. And the way that we test the depths is we kind of see, okay, well, let's examine the different areas of our life that are in need of adjustment, in need of correction. You know, if you were to look at the owner's manual for your Christian walk, it is the scriptures. It is the thing that you should refer to and resort to when things aren't going quite your way. So if you've ever had something break down on you, okay, so if your car is ever acting up and there's a light on the dashboard that you don't recognize, which if you have a more modern car, you realize that's more uh, apropos than not, that there's going to be a light on your dashboard that you don't know what that is and that you'll have to check the uh, owner's manual to see and to see exactly what's wrong. Most of the time, we never read the manual unless something's wrong, right? TV's not working, vacuum's not working. Then we pull out the manual and say, okay, well, what's wrong? And that's kind of how we live our life, unfortunately. A lot of the times we live our life that we only go to the word when things are broken, when things are not working. And the truth is we should be engaged in the word um, on a regular basis. I also want to thank those of you who prayed. Uh, We got a chance to speak at uh, North Point Bible College on Thursday. Many of you prayed for me while I was preaching there, and I want to say that God showed up in a very big way uh, for that service. I got a chance to preach, and many of the students uh, came forward at the end, and he got a chance to pray for about 45 minutes with each of the students, and just God was just working in their lives. Many were touched. Many were moved. Uh, God's uh, gifts were in operation, and it's a wonderful thing when that happens. So for those of you who prayed for me, thank you so much. The way that we evaluate our, uh, the depth of our Christian walk is by looking at these one another statements. There's about 100 of them in the New Testament, And they're broken down into four different themes. We've kind of talked about this before. The first theme being love. And that Jesus challenged us to love one another as he has loved us. And that's a tall order. That's a pretty big thing for him to ask of us. We can all be loving people, but can you be loving like Jesus was loving? Can you be loving towards others the way that he's been loving towards you? That's a a big challenge to us. 
The second theme being humility. Consider one another better than yourself. Serve one another. If you are unwilling to uh, serve and to help others, to lower yourself and to set aside your pride and to set aside your own opinions, then you'll never find humility there. Humility says, you know what? I'm going to put God first, others second, and my desires third. So we talked about humility. Last week we talked about unity, and Jesus prayed that uh, in uh, Matthew 17, uh, John 17, that, um, that they would be one, that those who believe in the message that I will send, that they would be one as I and the Father are one. And the understanding that being in unity results in the blessing of the Lord and a communion with God that we wouldn't normally have if we were in disagreement with each other. And how unity doesn't mean we all agree on the same things. It doesn't mean that we all are carbon copies of one another. But that even though we have different opinions, we are all united in one mind, one heart, and one purpose for the Lord. The fourth and final theme we're going to talk about today is accountability and encouragement. Accountability is something that is missing in the church today. Not this church, of course. I'm just saying in the church in general. But oftentimes, a church is very good at being loving and gracious and accepting, but not very good about holding one another accountable. Now, accountability, by definition, is the acceptance of responsibility for one's own actions. It implies a willingness to be transparent, allowing others to observe and evaluate our actions. Accountability is essential for building trust and health in an organization or a relationship. So in order for there to be a healthy dynamic in a organization, in a church, in a family, there needs to be accountability. There is a difference between empowering and enabling. God does not want dysfunction to be our function as a church family. Like any family, it works best when uh, the family is caring for one another and looking out for each other. When a family encourages good qualities, then the whole family feels loved, encouraged, protected, and cared for. When a family creates an environment where bad qualities are not confronted, though, the entire family adopts and adapts those negative qualities in order to survive. Maybe you've seen this, too. You know, dad might be abusive, mom might be a drinker, And so the family begins to make excuses for the behavior, learning to adapt around that. And the environment that is displayed and the actions that are displayed in the family dynamic from the parents on down begin to be adopted by the children. So if there's, for example, manipulation is the way to get things done in your family, then probably your children are going to go out and they're going to employ manipulation to be able to get things accomplished in their own life. If guilt is a tool that is sometimes used to get people to do things, then guilt is a tool that will be used by the family to be able to do things in other areas of life. You can see how one unhealthy dynamic can create unhealthy dynamics in other areas of a person's life. The result is an unhealthy and toxic family dynamic where nothing changes Bad behavior is never confronted, and family members don't really know where they stand in the situation. 
when we allow bad behavior to continue and we don't confront it, we are enabling that person instead of changing the dynamic of the situation. There's a difference between enabling someone and empowering someone. Enabling is when a person wants you to do things for them and takes no responsibility for themselves. They use you for what they want. Empowering is when you give someone the resources they need to grow and move forward. You support them as they take action. The person genuinely wants to learn and grow and takes what you say and do for them seriously. But enabling feeds into a person's dysfunction. But empowering leads a person to becoming more functional in life. And it's important to know the difference. The church, like a family, was created by God to empower them to reach the world. But sometimes when a church refuses to confront what's wrong in its midst, what it does is it enables bad behavior and it gives people a wrong understanding of what it truly means to be a Christian. We can be so overly grace conscious that we don't think about the uh, idea of conviction and repentance and the desire to do what's right in God's sight. Offenses go unchecked and unrecognized, and sometimes as a result, it ends up hurting people within the church or within an organization or even within a family because no one is willing to confront it. Quite honestly, confrontation is not something we all enjoy. It is something we'd rather avoid. Most of us don't like confrontation. We don't even like bringing things up that we don't care to talk about with people. But in the interest of health, in the interest of maturity, in the interest of moving things forward, confrontation is necessary in a loving way. Speaking of family, in the New Testament, the church is described like a family. Jesus often referred to God as our father, not his father, but our father. The book of John tells us in the first few chapters that those who believe in Jesus become children of God, that we become brothers and sisters in Christ through faith, and that we're to be a strong, healthy, and vibrant church that serves God's purposes in the world that we live in. But even a church can fall into dysfunction when it refuses to hold itself accountable for the actions of its people. We need to love each other enough to stand up for what is right over what is wrong and strive towards honoring God with our actions. The one and other statements of Scripture call us to accountability and encouragement. They call us to be a spiritually and emotionally healthy congregation. So let's look at some of the one another statements in Scripture that call us to accountability. The first one is Ephesians 4.25. 4.25. And it says, therefore, put away lying. Let each of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The first accountability scripture is do not lie to one another. Now, we all agree that lying is wrong. And most of us don't attempt to lie, but sometimes we may refuse to acknowledge the truth. Or there may be times where we don't point out when something isn't right. Or when we get caught in something that we'd rather not be caught into. So, for example, if your son or daughter is supposed to be home by a certain time, and they're not, and then you ask them later if they were, sometimes they may be inclined to lie. 
Or if your boss at work says, hey, did you do that project? So, yep, boss, I took care of that. It's all done. And then he asked to see it. And you say, well, it needs a couple of more tweaks before it's ready. It's not really done, is it? We sometimes take liberties with the truth. There might be times where we don't always, we aren't always forthright about things. How many times have you been asked if an outfit looks okay? And how many times have you had the bravery to actually tell the truth in a nice way? So, you know what I mean? So, like, okay, it's kind of like spinach in the teeth. It's like if, you know, you, you want to tell them they have spinach in their teeth. And you want to tell them if, if, their, if their outfit doesn't look good, don't, don't let them go out thinking that they do. Not that that ever happens in my family, of course. Like, she always looks good. But no, she, she knows that, like, if she says, what do you think about this? I'll be like, ah. You know, I'm just being honest with you. So, okay, so we all lie to each other here is what you're saying. So, if, so what you're saying with, by that groan that you just gave me is that you just let it go. Am I right? So your wife walks out of the house thinking she looks like a million bucks, and she doesn't because you'd just rather keep things. Yeah, I see how it is. I see how it is. <laughs> That's not what I hear when we're gathered as men, though, so... Or what we think, so like, it's good to be honest with each other. Sometimes not. Uh, can't be too honest. Okay? Um, and, you know, we've got to be forthright about uh, uh, what's going on in a person's life, how their appearance is. Or, for example, um, what a person thinks about a particular performance. So, like, example, okay, you know, I realize when I play music, I don't do the best job. It's not my first love. It's not what I do. Uh, and and when, when we're together with a group, if something doesn't sound right, we don't kind of just... You know, here at our church, like if someone's off singing, we don't just bring their mic down like another church. Amen? Okay, so like, okay, I'm hitting chords here. Am I hitting right? So you see, you understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about churches sometimes don't confront things. They're just like, okay, that person can't sing, but we'll have them up there, but we'll just bring the mic down, and the person gets mad because the mic's down. Instead of just simply taking a moment going, you know what? That's a little off, sister. That's a little off, brother. Maybe let's work on that section again, and we'll work on it too. And there'll be times too with our team that they'll be like, I don't understand where you're going, Pastor Dan. Can we go through this again? And I'll go, oh, I can't believe that you can't think, you don't like the way I lead music. No, I'm just like, you know, if you don't get it, stop me. I, I want to know that I don't get it and help me to do better with the way that I'm communicating. And so if we're honest with each other, we're better off. It's kind of like if you've ever watched American Idol and uh, if you've ever watched, like, a really bad performance on American Idol, and by the way, they do that on purpose. They, they bring up the people that are really good, and they bring up the people that are really bad because it's almost like they're mocking them and making fun of them. And inevitably, there'll be someone that sings really badly, and you're like, How, who told you to compete here? And, oh, my friends at work told me that I could sing and I should really try out, which their friends at work were not really saying, hey, you should try out. They want, really wanted to make a joke out of them. So, like, they think their performance is good, but it's not good because no one was being honest with them. And sometimes because we don't want to hurt someone's feelings, we say it's fine or it's okay or we do worse. We go, it's great. Go ahead. Go for it. And you're not really doing anybody a favor if they don't know what they're doing, you know. You've got to be lovingly honest with them. In a sense, that is lying because we're not being truthful with them when they ask. 
if they are truly asking because they want to know, lovingly and gently tell them the truth. So, you know, most people when they ask, how was that? They're expecting one answer, okay? They're expecting, that was good. So don't ask the question, how was it, if you don't want to hear how it really was. I've learned that over the years. It's like, don't ask because I want to hear, like, how good it was. Because sometimes you'll be unpleasantly surprised that it's not always good news. But it's okay to be able to receive uh, criticism, constructive criticism, to be able to improve and do better. It's much better to let them know the truth than let them embarrass themselves. Book of Proverbs has this interesting phrase. I don't have it on the screen for you, but it says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I want you to think about that for a minute. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. What that means is that a true friend may wound you in the sense that they're telling you the truth and the truth hurts. But someone who really doesn't care about you is going to say, that's great, you're awesome, how wonderful you are. And how many times have we seen that in politics and among the wealthy where like they surround themselves with yes men? Yes, boss, that's great. Yes, that's a good idea. Yes, you should definitely do that. And no one's holding them accountable whatsoever. A true friend will be honest with you even when it hurts because they care about you and they want to see you do the right thing and want to see you succeed. The second verse is this, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But, speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective work by which every part does its share causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I want you to notice the contrast here. The second thought here is speak the truth to one another in love. Now, that's a real big key because sometimes we like speaking the truth, but we don't do it in love. Well, I'm, I'm going to give them hard love. I'm going to give them hard facts. I'm, I'm just speaking the truth, and you just can't handle if I'm speaking the truth. There's a way to deliver things that can be received. Some things are not easy to say one way or the other, but it's always good to be able to come forth truthfully for the situation. Speak the truth. Speak it in love. Speak it with compassion, not shame or condemnation. The church can be really good at speaking the truth in condemnation and shame and guilt. In fact, that's what most Churches are known for it. In fact, that's the, one of the reasons why many people don't come to church because they don't want to come to church and be made to feel bad. The world makes them feel bad enough. If they're a mess up, sometimes they know they're a mess up and they don't want to hear it from somebody else. And sometimes Christians take great joy in pointing out the flaws and faults of other people. But speaking the truth in love does it with compassion, does it in truth, and it speaks it in a way that is edifying and building up. Now, what truth should we speak? Our opinion, uh, what we've heard on the news, what we think is truth. These days, can I just say, it's really hard to tell what truth is anymore. It used to be that there were reputable news organizations, and you could trust that particular source. And these days, everyone has their slant, everyone has their bias, and it's very difficult to present 
truth to people and say, well, this is how it is when how it is changes every three months. Does it make sense? So what truth do we need to bring forth? Our opinion, what the world says? No, scriptural truth. What the word says about how we should be living, not our opinion. And sometimes that can be hard to hear. So how do we do it? Here are some things that we can, that can help. So you can jot these things down to help you. It's like, okay, sometimes we're like, you know, we don't like confrontation, so we kind of rehearse in our mind what we're going to say to somebody. And we kind of work ourselves up with our nerves to be able to say it. And then finally when we get there, we get so nervous that all of that gets forgotten and it just, we come out with blunt statements and then there's an argument and everything kind of falls apart. Can I give you some, just some tips that will help you in this? Not that I've mastered this, but this has helped sometimes. First thing you should do is pray about how to do it. Pray about how to do it. The next thing is confront that person privately. If there's something that's going on in a person's life, if there's a, a confrontation that needs to take place, if there's an issue between you and another person, don't bring it up with other people around. So, for example, if, you know, you want to confront your husband about the fact that he didn't empty the dishwasher last night and how he never, never empties the dishwasher and how he never helps with anything, that's probably not a conversation in the lobby in church, okay? Although there's been times where I've heard wives run down their husbands in mixed company there, which if you really want to, like, really sabotage your marriage and your relationship, just keep doing that. That will go really well for you in the end. But if we change the way we do things and say, okay, instead of bringing out issues that need to be confronted in public with the individual, confront them privately. I have a personal policy for myself when it comes to this church. I will always praise good work done publicly. Okay, if you did a good job with something, if you, you had a, a commendable moment in your life, if you had uh, something that was worth celebrating in your life, I will acknowledge it publicly before the congregation. I'll acknowledge it in our times where we have our volunteer recognition dinner at the end of the year. We want to say thank you. We want to let you know you're appreciated and that you did a fantastic job. What I won't do is bring out your private garbage and display it for everybody. If there's an issue or a problem that I have with someone or something's not working properly, what I will do is do that behind closed doors because I want to respect you enough to recognize that it's not for everybody else to know what's going on. If it's a church-wide issue, okay. But, if, but I'm not going to call you out on a Sunday morning. And I would hope that you wouldn't make, it, uh, make the rounds of like making that person look bad in everybody else's eyes before confronting that person first. We're to do it in private. In fact, uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 19, gives us the model. Jesus said, you know, if someone's wronged you, someone sinned against you, go to them one to one and try and work it out. If they don't listen to you, then you go two to one. Why? Because every matter has to be established by two or three witnesses. Sometimes we need an objective ear to listen and arbitrate. Sometimes we need to have someone see for themselves what's going on with a person. So it's one-to-one, two-to-one. And then if the person still is like, I've done nothing wrong, and they still are willfully in disobedience and sin, then you bring that to the church and let the church elders 
handle that and try and work that, walk that person through correction. So there are times where we have to confront in private, but then eventually, if it doesn't get any better, confront in public. Another thought is, when confronting, listen to what the person has to say. Ask them, you know, you did this, and I felt disrespected, or I felt offended by that. Why did you do that? And sometimes if you let the person talk, they will acknowledge what's going on in their life. Sometimes they'll say, I've been under a lot of stress, or I lost a loved one recently, or my house is under foreclosure, or whatever the case might be. There's always something more to the situation than you're aware of. And sometimes by listening to that, you'll have a better insight to that. Another thing is acknowledge your part in any of this. You know, sometimes we're only like the other person is wrong, but not me. Sometimes we, don't, we fail to recognize that sometimes we've contributed to as much of the difficulty as the other person has. When people respond negatively to us, we respond negatively to them. If we receive a harsh word from somebody, we sometimes will respond with a harsh word. Or if we're short with somebody, they might be short with us. So accept responsibility for the parts that maybe you're responsible for. Respond lovingly and carefully. So when you respond, just think about what you say instead of just saying it and causing the other person to be offended. Offer solutions and options. When you're talking with the person, don't simply say, you know, you did this wrong, and, and so this is what has to happen. This is what needs to change. Offer solutions and options for change. And always make sure to pray throughout the process. Remember, the goal of speaking the truth is to help people to be grow to be more like Christ, not like us. We have their walk with Jesus in mind when we do this. I, I'll challenge you with this. Write this down. Be a fruit inspector, not a fault finder. A fruit inspector, not a fault finder. I'm not talking about going and getting a job at Big Y down the road in the produce section. I'm talking about the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. And we're supposed to just be displaying those things in, in, in our lives. And one another, we're supposed to be displaying those things together. And so we should be looking around saying, okay, what fruits do we see in people's lives? What people are kind? Which ones are loving? Which ones are demonstrating self-control? And acknowledging those things. Instead of picking out the faults, well, that person isn't this. Or did you hear about that person? They're this way. Or they've done that. When we do that, we're not actually helping them. We are actually tearing them down the eyes of others. It's the Lord that holds it all together. He's the one that's brought the body of Christ, the church, together to function. And when we're acting in maturity and unity, then the church can truly function the way that God meant it to. The church was meant to be an extension and expression of his love, but we function better when we're open and honest about what is wrong and do our best to make things right. When we speak the truth in love, we will cause people to grow up into him who is the head, not to be like Pastor Dan, not to be like you or anyone else. We're not trying to make people like us. The idea of being a Christian and being a disciple is that we're trying to make people like Jesus. And so we don't say, well, follow me because I'm the perfect example. No, we're flawed examples. We're flawed reflections of what it means to be a Christian. But what we're to do is to point people towards Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, when we're speaking the truth to someone, is it directing them towards a redemptive end or is it tearing them down and condemning them 
and causing them to become discouraged. So remember, uh, do not lie to each other. Speak the truth in love. Thirdly, James 5, 13 through 16. Let's look at that one together too. Are you still with me? Amen. All right, three. Great, wonderful. Don't worry, we're still going here. James 5, 13 through 16. Familiar passage of scripture. It says, anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is he cheerful? Let him sing psalms of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Now we sometimes forget verse 16. Confess your trespasses or sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now most of us know this passage of Scripture. We know the pray for people, anoint them with oil, and pray for them that the sick might be healed. And we, we do that. That's a practice that we practice here in the church. If anyone's feeling sick or if they're dealing with a particular condition or ailment, they can come forward. We'll anoint them with oil. We'll pray, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. But we sometimes forget, too, that there's another part of this that says that we need to confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed. Think about that. that that's something we don't often do. We don't really tell each other when we're struggling with sin. We don't really talk about the things that we're dealing with and that we're going through. Forgetting that the part of the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So when we ask for forgiveness, when we cleanse our heart and we uh, you know, make things right with God, we make things right with one another, what we're doing is we are living righteously. We are acting righteously. We are letting God cleanse us so that our prayers can be heard and nothing hinders our prayers. But so often, we're not holding each other accountable. We're not confessing our sins. In fact, it's, sometimes in church, what we try and do is present ourselves in the best possible light so that everybody thinks that we've got it all together and everybody thinks that we are living perfectly when at times we're not doing that at all. Now, please understand, when it comes to confessing, we have to be careful who we confess and confide in because not everyone is, uh, let's just say, um, discerning about what they share and who they share with. So there are going to be times where you might share something that's going on in your life, and that person has no idea how to help you. Or worse, they, they tend to talk and like to talk to other people. So now this thing that you've kind of agonized with and you've struggled with and you, you finally got the courage to confess to someone that you don't want anyone else to know, all of a sudden comes out and it's known by somebody else. So when you confess your sins to someone else, you've got to confess it to someone who's mature in Christ, someone who can keep confidentiality, and that someone can actually help you out. Does that make sense? That when we confess it to one another, that we have to know that that person is going to help us to pursue God and help us uh, walk into maturity. And that's not going to be shared with anything else. I want you to know that anything that you share with me in private in our conversations or in my office, I'm not going to share on Sunday morning in a sermon in a roundabout sort of way. I'm just not going to do that. Why? Because I want you to get better. I want you to be free. I want you to be able to walk without any kind of sense of shame or guilt and condemnation. I want you to be able to walk before the Lord and know that you're doing the right thing in His sight. 
But so often we don't talk about it with other people. We don't even want to acknowledge that we've done anything wrong. But can I encourage you that the way that you're going to get healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing, mental healing, is when you work through these things that you're struggling with and dealing with. That's why we see like the falling of great men and, and great pastors and celebrity uh, spiritual leaders because they don't have anybody else that they're holding themselves accountable to anymore. And there's things that they're doing that's behind the scenes that no one else knows about. And eventually it gets found out and you say, well, how did it get to that point? It's because they had no one that they confessed to, no one they confided in. We are to confess our sins one to another, not so that we have dirt on each other, but that so that we can pray for each other and help each other so that they can walk in righteousness. Now, how do we do this? We create accountability so that we can develop that. And so you find someone who's mature, someone you respect. Women, it should be with women. Men, it should be with men. And you say, well, that sounds old-fashioned. But it, think about it this way. If you're a man and you say, I struggle with lust, should you really be telling a woman that you struggle with lust? Think about it. Let's be honest here, okay? So we need to find accountability, men with men, women with women, and talk about what's going on in our life and, and be able to work through that. The way that you do that is like you just send them a message. Hey, how are you doing today? Uh, send them a, a, a verse of encouragement. Send them a prayer request. We've started to do this on Thursday nights with our, our prayer group, uh, our study group on Thursday nights. We're encouraging people, you know what? Send a verse that has to do with peace this week and share prayer requests this week with one another so that throughout the week that person is being encouraged mutually so that person doesn't feel like they have to go it alone. Accountability is not only just being with somebody or saying, well, I want an accountability partner, and then you meet once and you never talk with them again. (laughs) That's not accountability. Accountability is walking through life together and saying, you know what, today's a good day, today's not a good day. Or just talking with them, checking in with them once a week or texting them and saying, hey, you know, how are things going? And then when you talk with them, don't make up stuff. I remember people going to counseling and they're like, you know, okay, so people would go to a counselor with their problems, talk about all the deep-rooted secrets and things that are going on in their hearts. And then they would meet with a counselor later and the counselor would give them things to do. I want you to do X, Y, Z. Make sure you do these things because if you do them, you'll get, you'll get freedom, you'll move forward. And so you know what happens? Person doesn't do them. So what do they do? They go to their counselor and they lie to their counselor like they're talking to their teacher in high school. Like, did you do your assignment? Oh, my dog ate it. No, it's not like that. If you lie to your counselor or therapist, you're not, help, you're not fooling anybody and you're not helping yourself. Can I be honest with you on that? Just be honest about what you're going through. If you're falling and stumbling, let people know you're falling and stumbling. Let me know that you're going through that. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to pray with you and encourage you. I might be a little more stern, though, about the need to do this after our fifth time together and no progress has been made. But we need to move forward instead of going backwards. So confess your sins to one another so that you might find healing and that we might have that effectual, fervent prayer that availeth much. Fourth and final thought, Hebrews 10, 24 through 25.
This is a familiar passage of Scripture, and they might, be, it might have been used so much recently as, as people are, pastors are trying to get their congregations back to church. You might hear or see this one posted on a lot of pastors' pages, okay? It says, Let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from on evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The fourth thought is this, is to spur one another on to love and good works. Notice the encouragement from Hebrews 10. It encourages us to draw near to God and have pure hearts before him, but it also says, let us consider how we might stir up love and good works. One translation even says how we can spur one another on to love and good works. Now, the idea of spurring is similar to a rider spurring a horse to get it moving. So there are times where a horse may not want to move. And so the rider gives it a little kick, a little nudge. Sometimes there's a little spur on the back of the boot just to kind of give the little person, uh, that horse a little jolt so that they'll start moving in the right direction. There are times where we in the church get complacent. There's times where you and your walk, you might get comfortable and complacent. Or either you're discouraged and you say, you know, what's the point? No one listens, no one comes, no one does anything. Or you become comfortable and you're like, you know what? I'm getting older. I'm not really as motivated as I used to be. So I'm just going to stay here instead of going out to the Bible study or going out to the prayer meeting or going out to encourage somebody. I just don't have the tolerance or patience for people right now. So there's times where you can just settle in and become too comfortable to move. And what the body of Christ is supposed to do is we're supposed to be there for each other to kind of, there's on occasion the need for us to kick each other in the pants a little bit. Am I right? It's like, well, are you going to the men's breakfast on Saturday? Well, I don't know. It's like, well, I'm going, you should come with me. A nice kick once in a while would help with that. Are you going to the annual business meeting on Sunday? Well, I don't know. Well, come with me. We'll hang out afterwards. Or, uh, you know, if you're bringing a friend to church, it's like, well, you know, should my friend come to church? It's like, well, we'll have plans afterwards. Just come with me. Do something. We're there to hold each other accountable and say, you know what? Let's stop taking no for an answer. Let's start moving people towards love and good works. Sometimes the spurring can seem unpleasant or jarring, but it does move things along. There are times we need another person to move and motivate us. I'll give you an example. Exercise. My wife and I just started exercising again. I know it doesn't look that way, but trust me, we are exercising. And motivating yourself individually to exercise can be inconsistent and difficult. But when you have someone else to say, hey, you know, are you going to the gym today? I can tell you how the conversation goes with me and my wife, okay? My wife will say to me, are we going to the gym today? And here is my response. <laughs> it's 22 degrees outside. It's 7.30 in the morning. I'm tired. I haven't had my second cup of coffee yet. I don't want to do it, right? I don't want to do that. But she reminds me of it. And I say, yep, it's good that we do that. We get out the door and we go do it and we feel better later. There are times where I occasionally ask her, are we going today? And she would have the same response that I would do. But sometimes it takes someone else to get you out the door because if it were up to me, I'd go, eh, no, not right now. It's cold. 
I'll do it in March or April. You know, do you see the problem here is that we're like, if I keep waiting, it's going to be months before I change. And that's our excuse. Individually, we're very good at making excuses about why we don't want to change. Uh, if you ever tried to eat right, I was very impressed with Karen and Patrick Master because for a while there, they were, they were doing this diet thing together and making sure that they were watching what they ate. And they would hold each other accountable. You can't have that. Sometimes they'd be grumbling and complaining about it. And that's usually how it goes when you're trying to eat and do the right thing, that there's uh, times and occasions where we're, we have to hold each other accountable. Listen, you might want to have that pizza, or some people eat pork rinds, which, by the way, you're disgusting if you eat pork rinds. That's gross. That's pig skin, okay? That's the skin of the pig that you're eating. So it's gross. I'm, you're not going to persuade me otherwise, so don't even try, okay? But there's times where, like, that's okay. I want to do that. And then there's someone else that has to come along and say, you know what? You shouldn't be eating that. And the answer's still the same. But you know they're right, and you try and avoid those sort of things. It keeps each other accountable. What about praying and reading the Word? Some days it's tough for us to get up and do our devotions or to get up and pray. And if you don't have someone that's kind of saying to you, hey, are you in the Word today? You're doing a study together? Great. We're going through the book of James or whatever. And together you are just texting each other each day and saying, what did you get out of it today? You're like, ah, I didn't read it. Well, you better read it, and you better get back to me on that. Or we pray for each other and say, you know, how are you doing today? And instead of lying to each other and say, yeah, I'm good, I'm fine, just let people know, I'm not doing great today. Could you pray for me? Could you lift me up? Those things are so important that if you're going to stay consistent in anything, you need someone else to help you along and to be consistent with it. Your devotional life and prayer life will become deeper and richer when you help each other staying, to stay motivated. Verse 25 has an important component for this process. Community, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as the, you see the day approaching. The uh, spurring of one another to love and good works only happens in community and not in isolation. It's interesting to read that even in the early days of the New Testament church, that there were those who would forget and forsake getting together for worship. Think about that. Early church, book of Acts. Is there any more exciting book about the moving of the Spirit and God doing miraculous things in the book of Acts? And that there would still be people going, eh, I don't know if I want to go today. Like people being healed, people being set free, things are happening, people are being baptized in the Spirit, amazing things are happening. And some people go, eh, I don't know. I just don't know if I want to go. But if, if the writer of Hebrews was acknowledging that that was a problem then, it's a problem for everybody, whether it was back then or it is now today. We need to stay connected. We need to stay connected even in the times of COVID and even in the times of uh, economic uncertainty, even in the, the uh, times where there's concern over end times. We need to maintain our connections with God and with each other. The emphasis was gathering together in community and encouraging one another forward. Notice it says exhorting one another. Now, this term means to encourage, but to encourage with strong urging, with persuasion, and emphasis on its importance. Exhortation is not a passive sort of encouragement. It's persuasive. It has accountability and focus. Why? Because they said the day of the Lord is approaching. The day of Christ's return will come soon. Judgment day. And the idea behind it is that we want everyone to be ready for that. 
Listen, the days are evil. Am I right? The world seems to be getting worse, not getting better. So we need to be sober-minded and alert, living for God. One of the purposes of the church is to get people ready for Christ's return. We do that by checking on each other, encouraging each other, and urging each other towards living right and serving God. I'm not talking about nagging people or being obnoxious. Sometimes we can be obnoxious. But I'm talking about, <laughs> amen, that's funny. Sometimes we can be obnoxious towards people, but that's not going to motivate people to want to come and to, and to be in community. And, but if you're doing that, say, you know, I, brother, I love you so much. Sister, I love you so much. I, I don't want to see you fall by the wayside. How are you doing? Can you, come with me to church. Come with me to Bible study. Can I pray with you? Can I share a scripture verse with you? I just want to encourage you in some way. You know, if you're not in church, I'll bug you, but not in a naggy sort of way. I'm just like, hey, we didn't see you on Sunday. How are you? Is everything okay? Because sometimes things might not be okay. And we've got to give room for that as well. Oftentimes when we check on people, we'll find out they're going through a hard time and they need someone to help pull them out of their discouragement. Sometimes a text, a phone call, a scripture verse sent to them can be all that they need to keep going. Or even just letting them know that you're thinking about them or praying for them can lift their spirits. The church is stronger together when we encourage each other towards accountability. When we're urging each other, you know what, it's, good thing. it's a good thing for us to work together. It's a good thing for us to pray. It's a good thing for us to be in the word together. When we're urging each other forward, it's not just kind of a passive sort of, well, I hope you can, if you do, great, but no big deal. It's like, you know, we need to do this for the Lord, and we need to do this for each other, and there's a sense of weight behind it. And we've kind of lost a little bit of that. We're, we're so concerned about, like, how people perceive things that there's no sense of, like, urgency for what God wants us to do as a church. And I believe that we need to recapture that. I, need, I believe that we need to love each other enough to be honest with each other, to hold each other accountable, and to move each other forward. As I wrap this up, exhorting one another is so important, but serving is important, too, we are stronger together when we're in community with each other. When we gather together, we can check on each other and see what each other's faces look like to see if they need encouragement or prayer. If they're struggling, we can be a blessing to them. When we gather together, there's strength in serving. Many can do the job better than one person can. If you've ever tried to do a big job by yourself, you know it's exhausting, it's discouraging, it's frustrating. But when you have a bunch of people coming together and helping you, and things just get done quickly, you know that there's strength in numbers, and there's power in numbers. The church was created for the purpose of coming together to accomplish God's purpose in the world and to be able to reach the world with the gospel. And when we do that together, we won't be discouraged or frustrated about lack of attendance or who's here and who's not here or whether we should keep going or not going. Instead, we'll say, you know what? God's with us today. And with his help, we can do anything together if we believe that he can. As I wrap this up, we need to exhort one another more and more as we see the day approaching. I'm going to call the worship team up to the front as we get ready to close the service today. But I want us to think about this important truth.
thus exhort one another on to love and good works all the more as we see the day approaching. And we're living in perilous times today. We're living in times where things don't quite look like they're going to work out. Seeing the possibilities of war, we're seeing the possibilities of the Bible and the book of Revelation unfolding before our very eyes. And people talk about, well, you know, we know the Lord's coming back. But we've been talking about that for a long time. So sometimes it loses its weight. It loses its importance to us. But can I just challenge you with the idea that he's closer to coming back now than he was when you were younger and you first heard about it. He's still coming back. Each of us will have to stand before God for what we did. Accountable for our actions. And the reason why God established accountability in the church now is so that we can confront the things that need to change before we have to be confronted on judgment day with the things that we didn't get right. Confrontation and conviction is never easy. But there are times where we have to have conversations with one another so that we can be in the right heart and right spirit so that when we stand before God, there'll be nothing we'll be condemned for because we'll have worked it out on this side of eternity. The Lord's return is eminent. You can come back any day now. The question I would ask you is, are you ready for that? Is your heart ready? If you were to stand before God today, would you know that he would welcome you with open arms? Or would you be uncertain about whether or not he would receive you? If you're not sure, I encourage you to be sure. I'm here to talk with, I'm here to explain what it means to be saved, but I want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for your life that is better than anything that you could ever imagine or think of. But you can go into the future with the assurance that when that day comes, you'll be ready and it will receive you with gladness. So let's pray. So God, I just pray for each person in this place, Lord God, that you would help each of us, Lord God, to be people who encourage and spur one another on to love and good works. Lord, I pray that when we speak, we would speak with love in our hearts, that we would bring confrontation and things gently to people. Lord, help there to be a sense of righteousness and peace in this house and even in every relationship and every family. Lord, I pray that we would be loving and kind, Lord God, even in correction. Help us to make the tough decisions and and to be honest and open with each other about where we're at and where we need to be. And then, Lord, I pray for if anyone here today doesn't know you, that, Lord God, that they would get to know you today, that they would seek you out and know that you're a God that loves and a God that saves. So work in our hearts today as we endeavor to follow you Make us stronger together as we do not forsake the assembling of the brothers and sisters together in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.